It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stump, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Traumatize, the podcast where we explore resiliency and untold stories of those who navigate the complexities of vicarious trauma. Today, we're privileged to host an esteemed guest, Christy Molner. Christy is a registered dietitian nutritionist, certified clinical trauma specialist, and a leader of the integration of trauma-informed approaches into the field of nutrition and dietetics. Christy educates and facilitates the application of trauma-informed best practices within nutrition and health services and promotion. In this role, she partners with healthcare organizations, public health programs, universities, and dietetic internships, K-12 schools, food banks, and worksite wellness programs. Christy resides in Phoenix, Arizona, where she also partners with substance use and recovery centers to provide individual and group nutrition support and consulting services. Welcome, Christy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're busy. Yeah, I do stay busy. <laughs> A lot going on. Well, we're so happy to have you joining us today. And Christy, Lindsay and I have talked quite a bit on Traumatize, both in season one and a little bit this season about our perspective around the real need for trauma-informed care within the medical context. And I think a really important part of that that sometimes gets forgotten is this nexus between health and what we think about around nutrition services. Could you share with us a little bit about what brought you into the realm of trauma-informed care within health and nutrition? Sure. What brought me into trauma-informed care was mostly through my work with public health and public health nutrition programs been with public health the early 2011, I believe it was. And it's from there where I started learning about the concept of ACEs or adverse uh, childhood experiences, as well as the concept of like, how do you, what do you do with this? How do you apply it through trauma-informed care? But um, I've really just seen the, the evolution of just the integration of this knowledge of ACEs and trauma-informed care into various public health programs, such as schools, as well as community health settings. But also what's largely got me into trauma-informed care is working with the Arizona SNAP-Ed program. So SNAP is a Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and then the education component of that, formerly known as the Food Stamps Program. But working with the Arizona SNAP-Ed, trauma-informed approaches became a guiding principle to the grant work at a state level. And so what that means is we started just integrating these concepts into nutrition messages, nutrition promotion, nutrition education, as well as just, you know, within the community settings. And then I've been lucky enough to then on this journey to sit in on various ACEs coalitions across the state from just trauma-sensitive schools to uh, ACEs communication, as well as we have a wonderful interfaith committee that is working with trauma-informed care as well. 
But yeah, it's just been a it's been a fabulous journey of learning. It took me back to the university to get a a certificate in trauma counseling. I mean, I've just been digging very deep and I've been hooked ever since just learning about ACEs as well as trauma-informed care. Yeah, that, that definitely, it's like such an interesting nexus that I, I think was one of the reasons we felt like it was so important to talk to you to really to bring light to the intersections of places that people might not think about the sort of trauma impact, especially on nutrition. And so we'd love to know, what does it mean to you to craft environments that foster optimal well-being, particularly within nutrition and health programs? Yeah, absolutely. So much of my work, I utilize SAMHSA's guiding uh, principles, their four assumptions and guiding principles. So with that, just realizing, you know, the prevalence and then the widespread impact of trauma among those that make up our organizations or our staff, as well as the people served. And that awareness of just serving people who might have histories of adversity, trauma, ongoing stress, or just other mental health challenges. But also, you know, with my work, I try to educate and bring awareness that food in and of itself can be a source of trauma or adversity. It can also be used as a response to this adversity and trauma that people maybe experiences. For example, you know, food can be a source of trauma, whether it be in the household and used as a form of neglect or punishment. Um, we see it with with families who might be newer to the country and they're, you know, having to forfeit or give up cultural food traditions, not having access to cultural foods. In community nutrition, we food and nutrition insecurity or hunger can be a source of adversity and trauma or just food sourcing and the pursuit of trying to get enough food to feed the family, whether that be the utilization of community nutrition programs, which, you know, some, there is still some stigma around that, but, or just, you know, having to do what you need to do to acquire food to feed your family. But an, another big source of adversity that we see that involves food is this concept of we call diet culture. So diet culture, just for definition, we'll just say it's a, a value system that prioritizes certain weights, certain sizes and shapes over health. And it's just promoting this ideal of thinness as being the only way of being healthy. And so diet culture can lead to dieting and just this desire to fit into this quote unquote norm, but also, you know, this ongoing pursuit of, of weight loss or being healthy can in and of itself be a source of adversity, especially, you know, when, as the research continues to show, when people get off of diets tend to gain the weight back, all of it, if not more. And so that can be challenging for some mentally, but then also within our society, you know, there's a lot of weight stigma and that kind of couples well, or couples with diet culture and just white weight stigma or the prejudice, discrimination or negative attitudes aimed at those, you know, perceived as being overweight. So that's just one piece of it. So just the awareness that food in and of itself can be a source of adversity and trauma, but then understanding that food can be a coping mechanism to this trauma and adversity. It can be seen, you know, these eating behaviors can be a source of like self-regulation or just helping regulate the body's stress response. And for many people, especially, you know, in community settings is food can be a means of survival. And so whether that, you know, comes out in diets being higher in sugar and fat, you know, we see that among people that have this ongoing stress response in their body and this gravitation towards highly palatable foods. Hormones that regulate uh, hunger and, and satiety cues. So there can be changes in just hunger and satiety cues 
And or, you know, as we know with trauma, some of us, we tend to try to escape our bodies, dissociate. And so with that, being disconnected with our body, not able to recognize hunger and satiety. And so long story short, this can lead to over and under eating. Also just adversity and, you know, trauma can lead to what's considered disordered eating patterns. Disordered is a word that, you know, is it really disordered or is this just normal responses to a dysregulated body, but that can show up in just anything from rigid behaviors around food, you know, fearing certain foods, binge eating, even, you know, purging among a list of other uh, disordered eating patterns, just general anxiety around food. But a big one too, when we see people that, you know, might be experiencing trauma or just ongoing stress is this reliance on convenient or fast foods, which often is, you know, stigmatized, but if a person's, you know, experiencing this this trauma or this dysregulation in their in their stress response, you know, it can be very hard to engage in behaviors that require like higher level thinking, right? So anything from planning a meal to shopping to reading a food label to preparing a meal, those are very highly cognitive processes that, you know, unless you have access to that executive function of your brain, it's going to be very hard to do. And then finally, you know, this can also look like a lack of motivation or just the inability to prioritize health. So just kind of bringing awareness to that to help reduce the stigma, blame, and shame associated with various, you know, food choices, with diet-related diseases, or when we see that people are just really struggling to change their behaviors. It's not a failure of willpower, but looking kind of deeper into the whole health perspective and really asking the questions, you know, what might be going on that might be getting people to, you know, have challenges with making changes to their eating behaviors. And not to mention keeping in mind, you know, local context and what food is available. But then, you know, utilizing those four R's, responding in ways, as we all know, trauma-informed care to prioritize safety offering choice when it comes to whether it be our services or, you know, foods that are provided as part of a food bank, just emphasizing building that connection and that trust. And then, of course, is just being reflective of culture when it comes to the foods served or the foods provided or, the you know, when we're providing nutrition education, making sure that we're culturally responsive with our messages. Speaking to our heart, we love the, the SAMHSA study around implementing trauma-informed care and collective. And I think the one thing I want to highlight that you were saying is that for folks that don't know about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, right, the fascinating thing about it is it really was sort of a look at why people were gaining weight, what it, it had a lot to do with a person's sort of physical body health. And, and that was how the ACEs like came out of this sort of weight loss study when a doctor figured out like, oh, there was a trauma incident that caused somebody to really like use food as, as you were talking about as a, as a coping mechanism, as a way to almost a protective factor for their body. And so I just want to highlight that for our listeners who might not know that about where the adverse childhood experiences survey came from, because it is so deeply tied to nutrition and food and the ways in which we interact with your sort of expertise specific. Yeah. Yeah. This is the aha moment that's coming up for me, Christy. I'm like sitting here like, yeah, I think what you just helped me understand that I, I probably had never connected before is that 
food can be both the cause, the source of a trauma, and it can be the response to having survived that trauma, right? When we think about things like food scarcity, when we think about poverty and the traumas that are associated with living in under-resourced communities. And so that's what makes, I think for me, the food element so complex. (laughs) And I don't know that I've ever sort of thought about it in that basic way that you described. And you also highlighted that part of doing this work and the role that you play is figuring out how are we supporting the staff that are really trying to create these trauma-informed experiences with communities. And I'm curious, you know, in your role as a registered dietitian nutritionalist, how do you collaborate with others in the health profession to make sure that there's this collective response to how you're bringing trauma-informed practices to the folks that you're working with? So number one is just building awareness. Awareness is huge. Back to that ACE study, that's not taught in our school in undergraduate studies and nutrition. I'm not seeing it a whole lot in graduate studies either. And so just building this awareness is key when it comes to this collaboration and letting them have that aha moment like like you did, Bridget, like you did, Lindsay, and really helping them kind of shift their perspective on how we view human behavior, how we view food choices, eating behaviors, as well as just diet-related health conditions and diseases. But one thing too with this awareness, help people kind of shift from just telling people what they need to eat or what changes they need to make in their diet to really kind of getting them to explore or to, you know, be asking like, not necessarily out loud, but in their head, like, why do you eat what you eat? What's influencing your food choices? What may be going on on a deeper level rather than looking at it solely as just individual choice or lack of willpower, so to speak. But with that awareness too, kind of going back to bringing awareness then to the trauma-informed care best practices, you know, when it comes to safety, voice, collaboration, peer support, all of those guiding principles, but ultimately empowering, so to speak, these organizations who know their programs best, giving them the tools, the resources they need to be successful. I'm here to help, you know, provide that guidance but these individual programs, you know, they know, they know their audience, they know their staff, they know what will work, what won't work the best. And so I'm here to just, you know, provide the tools for, you know, to assess if their program's ready or to give them the tools of like, what are some common ways, strategies to implement this? And then of course, some evaluation tools and, and measurements if they want to measure outcomes or changes in levels of care, et cetera. Uh, And then I should go on to say too, kind of back to that piece is bringing awareness and continuing education to these concepts of, you know, vicarious or secondary trauma, compassion, fatigue, and burnout as our roles as nutrition professionals, because we are also helping professionals and, you know, helping professionals are all susceptible to these conditions of vicarious trauma. Yeah. And we're definitely going to get into that a little bit later because that's a lot to hold in spaces that somebody going into working in the nutrition field might not necessarily sort of expect with the tie related to the impact that they might see in, in the clients that they're working with. And I'm so interested in a piece that you said is like you've, you know, so you've worked at the local, state and national levels. And I think what have you found? You were talking about these sort of like implementation of trauma informed practices. What have you found in terms of being like the differences or commonalities that you've observed in implementing those 
practices across these sort of diverse settings. Sure. So, you know, just for background, these diverse settings can include, and this is anywhere you'll find a nutrition professional, a dietitian working in hospitals, community health clinics, long-term care facilities, food and nutrition security programs like SNAP, WIC, or food banks. A lot of our work is in one-on-one, you know, counseling and coaching, as well as research and nutrition education and promotion. But across these settings, the understanding of ACEs and trauma, it really varies from state to state, from institution to institution. And while we're seeing a momentum on a national, on a state level in certain states, such as through like SNAP-Ed and integrating the trauma-informed best practices in their nutrition messages and services, we're seeing that momentum, but there is also states where this idea is not yet on their radar and that's, you know, to nobody's fault. This is a, a gradual process. And I've learned with public health, it's a slow moving process. But nonetheless, we are, you know, seeing this momentum also within institutions and just, like I said, being more receptive than others. And a, a big example that comes to my mind with that is K through 12 schools. K through 12 schools here, for example, in Arizona, there's some that are, are really on board with this trauma-informed approach or, you know, social emotional aspects of learning. Whereas there's other schools and school districts that don't even bring up that word trauma because it's associated with other, other approaches that, you know, these schools might not be on board with. And that's okay too. That's why I've made it, I personally strive to use language that is inclusive and not only inclusive for the diverse people that we serve, but also in people's beliefs, right? So wanting to reach all schools, not just ones that, you know, are already on board with it, but using language that, you know, will be more receptive to these schools who aren't otherwise wanting to talk about trauma or social emotional learning. But overall, just in the field of nutrition, it's still a very novel topic and it hasn't been part or a standard part of educational requirements. Like I said, like the ACE study is only have I seen it in a few undergraduate studies. But with that, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but understanding trauma-informed care really varies by practitioner. And it largely depends on like if their instructor actually valued and understood the importance. And so it's really case to case. And we're seeing more like dietitians and nutrition, you know, counseling adapting this into their work. But again, it's really kind of dependent on if that practitioner is interested in it. It's, it hasn't been standardized. But I think some of the hesitation does revolve around that because there's a lack of data on outcomes, you know, uh, uh, showing, you know, what are the outcomes of using this approach to care, you know, whether it be on short, medium, or long-term health outcomes or changes in health behaviors. So there is some of that hesitation but just commonalities, what I'm seeing too across the board is there's definitely an increased interest in the topic of mental health and nutrition. People are seeing that mental health, there's a crisis in this country and also seeing how nutrition can help that. And that's usually when I hear about people wanting to learn more about nutrition and mental health. It's like, oh, what foods do I need to eat for a healthy brain? Which is one piece of the conversation. And then that's when I gently also get into what I mentioned earlier about, you know, food being a source of and a response to this mental health. But also just, you know, practitioners are and dietitians always wanting to learn more. There's always continuing education going on. And so, yeah, it's just kind of 
like I said, slowly becoming more and more a topic of conversation among a nutrition professionals. Christy, I'm like getting so excited here because I, I'm almost experiencing from this conversation my own entry into trauma-informed education and thinking about how it changed the way I thought about myself as a lawyer. It changed the way I showed up in my personal life and, and even as a leader. And what's so interesting in, in listening to your leadership in this sector is we know, right, that 70% of adults from the most recent data identify that they've had a trauma exposure in their lifetime. When you think about that sort of volume and the fact that food is a daily part of our existence, right? The fact that nutrition and dietitian is a space that we are sort of slowly coming into understanding the impact of trauma is interesting when you think about that reality. And I think so much of it goes back to what you talked about around the kind of cultural shaming that happens when um, food is a coping strategy or even just sort of that diet culture. Like there's so much cultural shaming around those pieces that I think it creates this um, almost added barrier to us actually addressing those root causes of why food can be such a response to having survived trauma. So this feels really important and like a really critical message to share with all the folks that we are doing this work with, all the sectors that we've been talking to. And I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, in your personal experience and really being a champion in this space, what have you done to overcome some of the challenges that you've experienced and how have you navigated the impact of vicarious trauma? Yeah, absolutely. Nutrition students and professionals, you know, healing their own relationship with past trauma, healing their own relationship with food and their body. A big piece is just awareness, is bringing the awareness not only to healing ourselves, but also with healing ourselves from, you know, our current struggles, but also just the awareness of vicarious trauma, the awareness of compassion fatigue and and what are the symptoms of it? What are some signs that, you know, we might be affected by the, of working with others. And so it's just bringing awareness as well as education on ways that we can reduce that. What are some ways that we can offer, you know, within our work, just this awareness education on trauma and resilience, but also, you know, providing peer support and just team connection opportunities, like within staff, helping to build connectedness recognizing wins and challenges is really important too. I'll just, you know, say from experience, public health can be challenging because sometimes we don't see if we're even having an impact. And sometimes it can be like, oh, am I even doing anything? Am I making a difference? And so just being able to recognize even the littlest wins or how we overcome challenges is really important. Learning to just recognize individual strengths and capacities but then also on an organizational level, just considering staff workload and, and demand, providing adequate breaks or discouraging like working long work hours, having flexible schedules, you know, and just providing choice and a level of autonomy in the work that we do, you know, when possible. But and then just encouraging work-life balances is so important, taking time off as well as just other ways that we can you know, take care of our mental and physical health, whether it be through seeking outside services, but also just, you know, mentorship, trauma-informed mentorship or, and supervision can also be helpful. Christy, you're bringing up like such an interesting point that I was just actually talking with a couple of colleagues about around this like idea of sort of not seeing the wins 
on things and what impact that that has on us in the helping professions around like we might have this small blip and usually do right in someone's life when they've been impacted by trauma or for whatever reason they're coming to to seek sort of services from us and it can be really hard to not necessarily always see the outcome or the impact of where we intersect with somebody which is a real challenge right as we think about the sort of vicarious trauma that that has on us and you know, one of the things that we were talking about is like really trying to reframe the ways in which we talk about and think about what are wins in helping professions, right? And so for us, we were talking about at the hospital after someone's experienced sexual assault, a win for us could be like them being an individual being willing and trusting enough to hold our hand in that moment, right? It doesn't have to be these really big, big things that happen in a person's life. It's these little moments where like, We've created trust and empathy and compassion that they feel like we're going to give them a safe response. And so thinking about that as it relates to your profession and just noting this is not a question that was on our list. So I'm sorry that I'm about to ask you this. But when you think about like where are the places for you that really help build this idea of vicarious resiliency like, what are those little wins in your world that really help keep you going? One, I think, would be just considering participation and a person showing up to a community health event or, you know, a food distribution event. Just showing up is, 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 is a strength in and of itself, right? Like I mentioned earlier, there is stigma associated with whether it be weight stigma or stigma associated with getting food from like a food bank or a community nutrition program, that can take a lot. So showing up, but also participation. So in these nutrition education classes is, you know, seeing people come together, seeing people participate, seeing people smile and being receptive of the information, but also it's just it's, it's a win to see people coming together, me taking a step back as a practitioner and letting them come up with their own solutions and letting people through that peer support, mutual self-help, having people highlight and recognize what strengths they already have, what capacities they already have, and recognizing their resilience that they already have. I mean, Life is hard and life can be harder when we're not living in optimal circumstances. And so just being able to highlight and having people recognize their own strengths and capacities is a huge win. Also, I think it's just a win for people to, whether behavior change is made or not, just the awareness of the complexity of of food behaviors and really having people kind of have that aha moment of, this isn't all my fault. This isn't, I'm doing the best that I can, but recognizing how stress can play a role in food choice and our behaviors and outcomes. It really takes a lot of that load off of, you know, personal responsibility and just kind of helping people recognize that their behaviors are completely normal. These normal, they're normal in that if we are going through stress or if we are going through adversity, you know, this gravitation towards highly palatable foods or overeating is completely normal. And I think that is a win in of itself when people 
can taking that shame and blame off of an individual and a community for that matter is a huge win. Yeah, I love that. And the thing that you're bringing up for me is just how we often talk about, Christy, the value of and and the benefit as a helper getting to see folks in their own resiliency and really highlighting for them, like you said, their capacity that they've been able to sort of get to this point, to show up, to interact, just like how beautiful it is that they're in that moment with us. And normalizing, right, like validating and normalizing in a way that takes away some of that shame and blame that society has often created, I think, particularly around this particular coping strategy as a response to surviving trauma. And for me, what you're doing, I don't know if this is like a helpful way to think about it. But it's like for somebody else to create a different story that is not that tape in the play, you know, that sort of tape playing in the head of like, this is your fault. You're not strong enough. You don't have the willpower, but someone else putting in there like this is a normal response to what you have survived in your life. And there are other sort of folks here to help and support you if you want to make different choices about how you survive. And and I just think like giving a different story to that feedback loop is so powerful. So I wanted to highlight like from my perspective, having none of the expertise that you have sitting in the field of nutrition and dietitian work, it's just an interesting way to think about it. But you have really got like sort of the wheels turning in my head about how I think about this in my own life and, and people in my life. I'm really grateful for that. But I I do just want to ask, is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you would want to share or leave folks with who are listening? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Yeah, I think kind of just to build off that small win and what to echo what you said, Bridget, is just having compassion for ourselves and having compassion towards others and or just understanding how, you know, adversity can impact health behaviors, I think is huge. Um, just bringing that, you know, awareness to that piece, especially around diet and and food, is so big. Because, like I said, it's it's not as much talked about in our field. There is momentum, but I would invite people to learn more about the topic and how food is a, a very strong regulator. And with that, invite people to kind of shift that compassion towards ourselves, compassion towards others. And just look at some of these behaviors as completely normal at responses to the conditions in which we live. But also, I think with this integration of trauma-informed care in the field of nutrition, I call on public health and larger agencies to bring more attention to this. Like the CDC, they put out a press release. It's been a couple decades now, but just highlighting you know, the concept of obesity and what we need to do to respond to this, what they called an epidemic. But within this call to action, nowhere did they talk about childhood adversity. Nowhere did they talk about creating environments that are conducive to mental health and well-being. So I think it's on you know, larger, these larger entities, uh, public health entities, to really call more attention to that overlap. Again, taking that blame off of the individual, taking that blame, even, you know, from a contextual or societal, like there's been a lot of work in public health, increasing access to, you know, more affordable, nutritious foods, which is great, but also the need to highlight the role of adversity in, like I said, these these diet-related behaviors and health outcomes. And I just call too on our profession, the need to standardize this within you know, the dietetic or nutrition curriculum. And then just the need for ongoing research as well. Some people love the data. And so, and I understand that, but just getting that data, if we can get more of that, I think it'd be more, more accepted. 
Christine, Bridget, and I love data. Um, and I think there's also a really important thing that you're uplifting is around like, right, the, the storytelling, the connectivity of all of the places that nutrition really relates to an individual's, the impact that trauma might have on them and in their sort of journey post-trauma into how they take care of themselves moving forward. And so we just want to take the opportunity to thank you so much for being with us today, Christy. We're also grateful for you, the listener, joining us for season two of Traumatize. As you listen to season two, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Traumatized podcast wherever you listen. We cannot thank you enough for being on this journey with us, and we hope that you'll join us for a season of more Untangling. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.